0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Megan Cassidy. I'm the crime reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I will be moderating today's program. Uh, We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all other programs possible. We are grateful for their support and hope that others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. Uh, Today, I am joined by Jennifer Carlson, an associate professor of sociology and government and public policy at the University of Arizona. Jennifer is the author of a recent book called Policing the Second Amendment, which details the relationship between guns, the police, and race in the United States. Jennifer's work is supplemented by her background in criminal justice and race and ethnicity to generate a well-rounded view of police perspectives on race and gun accessibility. Jennifer's research on this topic comes at a crucial moment in in America, where many of us are reexamining the implications of race and policing in our society. By exploring local and national newspapers, interviewing six dozen police chiefs, and surveying gun licensing processes, policing the Second Amendment presents an inside view of how police view guns and gun violence. These conversations are often intertwined with race as people of color face the system of gun criminalization, often viewed as biased and unfair. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions too. Uh, if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube or the comments on Facebook, and we will be getting to them later in the program.
0: So, Jennifer, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. Um
1: so I, I just finished your book. It is excellent. It's uh it's super interesting, especially um for for me especially, I'm, I'm dealing with these kind of stories all the time, and I think that your book touches on a lot of issues that aren't commonly dis- discussed in uh, mainstream media. Um, the, your book starts off with the story that probably a lot of the audience uh, remembers, that in 2016, a black man named Philando Castile, uh, he was a concealed pistol license holder, got pulled over by police, and he was fatally shot while he was reaching for his driver's license. Uh, This incident, as you put it, uh, uh, put both the left and the right in uncomfortable sides of the gun debate. Um, Was it this incident in particular that inspired you to write this book?
0: Yeah, that's that's a, a great question, and yeah, the book starts out with this with this case because it is so powerfully sort of illustrative of the intersections of guns, gun politics, law enforcement, and and race. And so, Philando Castile, as you mentioned, um, you know, a, a, a school cafeteria supervisor, a father, a fiance, an African American man, he's pulled over because he fits the description, and he is he is killed uh, by the officer that that pulls him over. And so, I found found it Fascinating in the midst of this tragedy, um, this um, this this killing, that actually for a very short um, moment—or I shouldn't say moment—because it actually happened also after um, after uh, the the cop's acquittal happened. Um, there were moments, there were points where sort of the the two sides of the debate uh, almost seemed to have this uh, unlikely um, unlikely consensus on what happened. Uh, from the New York Times to the National Review, you had. Uh, people saying something went wrong here. You know, whatever you think about guns, whatever you think about the police, this should not have happened um, from the the actual incident up to the acquittal. Um, And of course, though, Nothing changed as a result of that. Um, Perhaps we could have had a better gun debate, but we didn't. Uh, NRA members called on the NRA to to make a statement about this case um, in favor of sort of protecting the the right of people in the U.S. to to own and carry guns. Uh, The NRA didn't do that. The NRA instead uh, used very euphemistic language saying, you know, uh, something along the lines of events in Minnesota are troubling. Um, Meanwhile, uh, very explicitly supporting um, um, police and, and police victims of of violence um that happened also that week so this became sort of this uh, really powerful public example of sort of how the the politics of the police and the and the politics of guns intersect. But my questions about sort of how race shapes, uh, what it means to be a good guy with a gun versus a bad guy with a gun, how, um, you know, what are the terms, what are the stakes of of exercising the right to keep and bear arms that is laid out in the Second Amendment, how that's inflected with race. um, That actually started uh, as part of my research for my first book, Citizen Protectors. And so what I found in that book um, was not just that gun carriers uh, had very different ideas about the police and sort of um, whether the police, you know, sort of how their guns uh, put them in relation to police depending on their own sort of racial identities. But they also described to me really different treatment by the police. Um, Whites very rarely um, having experiencing harassment um, or, uh, you know, discrimination or that sort of thing uh, by virtue of their decision to to exercise the right to keep and bear arms, whereas uh, African-American interviewees and people I met as part of my observation in that book uh kept sort of bringing up these incidents of, of harassment and discrimination. Um, and so that sort of opened my mind to thinking through what is actually going on in the context of, um, of gun law enforcement. And I actually had a very sort of up close and personal experience with this. Um, I as, as part of that book, I uh, I was an ethnographer, which meant that I, I engaged in a lot of the practices and and sort of stuff that, you know, the people I was studying were involved in. And so I would go to open carry picnics. I would participate you know, uh, in, 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 You know different gun related stuff and so there's one incident where I was with a group of open carriers who were actually stopped by the police and the police ran all of our firearms I was carrying a firearm at the time and I can talk about the politics of all of that Um, and so you know this is Michigan where you're supposed to have your gun registered my gun was registered and the officer came back to me and said that I was actually carrying an unregistered gun now as a PhD student at UC Berkeley uh, of course I was immediately horrified I thought oh my god this is the end of my everything Um, and And so I went to my car, I picked, I, I pulled out my registration, which I was not legally required to carry, but nevertheless produced it. And the officer gave me back my gun and said, Um, You know, I would have given this back to you anyway, because essentially these mistakes happen all the time. And so what happened was a bureaucratic error. And um, so that really opened my mind both to sort of the ways in which bureaucratic process opens up the sort of door for different kinds of gun criminalization, um, but also how officer discretion is so crucial in terms of who is actually um, held accountable for these, um, you know, right. for, for these infractions. And so, you know, as a white woman who appears, you know, I, I was about 10 years <laughs> younger then, um, you know, I, I couldn't help but wonder how my own sort of self presentation of self, um, my identity impacted how that police, uh, police officer treated me. And so that's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know um, how race and um, how race enters into, um, um, not just the politics of guns, but also gun law enforcement, which is a question we generally don't ask in terms of the gun debate. We talk about the gun policies that that we want or don't want, but we don't look at it at the level of enforcement so that's <laughs> that's kind of how I got inspired to yeah to to get into the the texture of this book
1: yeah, I know it's a it's a fascinating topic, and uh one thing that I really liked is that that you argue that there are more useful ways. To frame gun debates than you then using usual terms like gun control and gun rights so so instead you said that the public should think about the debates in in the terms of gun popularism and gun militarism um, and they and these are sometimes overlapping um, theories. Can you kind of explain what each of them mean and
0: how they can intersect with one another for sure, yeah, so one of the things that has sort of Uh, troubled me and frustrated me often, um, in conversations about Gun politics gun laws is this line that we often hear in the United States which is that we don't have gun control and most certainly when we compare the United States and the apparatus of gun regulations to um, to Canada to the UK to Australia to New Zealand now we don't have gun restrictions and regulations like those countries do we don't have an all- out ban for example on assault style weapons um, but what we do have is a very American style of gun control or at least that's what I would argue that we have gun criminalization we have a set of laws not unlike um, you know drug drug laws that use drugs use guns as sort of a vehicle of criminalization, often resulting in, um, you know, major racial disparities in terms of enforcement. And so sort of coming um, at that insight and sort of trying to make sense of how we could reconstruct the gun debate from um, that starting point, that actually we do have gun regulations, but they're not the kinds of gun regulations that we might imagine when we, we think through the, the common terms of the gun debate, led me to think through these, these kind of two axes along which um, police, but actually also the general public and both sides of the debate sort of talk through um, talk through gun laws and politics and policies. And so gun militarism, I think, is the the, the, the easier one to kind of wrap your head around, uh, because in some ways it, it, it reflects sort of what we have had a now somewhat sustained conversation, at least uh, since um, for the last five years or so in the, in the public um, domain about police militarization and sort of this, this um, authority or presumed authoritarian or authoritative sort of uh, relationship between police and the people they, they police. So um, thinking about sort of gun militarism in the, in it with an emphasis on disarming aggressively sort of waging a war on guns, uh, Adopting and embracing tough-on-crime gun policies like mandatory minimums and laws that um, increase sentencing guidelines. Um, for example, if a crime is committed in the presence of a gun, even if that crime has absolutely nothing to do, or even involves that that gun, you know, the, the gun is merely there. Um, there are laws on the books, such as the "Use a Gun in Your Done law in California, that actually increase the the um, the amount of time served for that for that crime. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of motivated by this very racialized. Imaginary of, of who is a bad guy with a gun, um, gangbangers, drug dealers. That's those sort of racist tropes of urban criminality that stipulate uh, boys and men of color as as um, as as criminal. Um, that's kind of embedded in the, the gun militarism, um, framework. And so we see this, um, you know, in some ways on both sides of the debate, we see this in the calls from the NRA to, you know, enforce law and order enforce the gu- the, the laws on the books. Um, and we also hear it from, you know, the, the kind of consensus of sort of on both sides for, you know, aggressively going after the quote unquote real gun criminals. And so anytime you hear those lines of sort of drawing, um, you know, drawing lines between the bad guy versus the good guy with a gun and that sort of thing, um, that this kind of ideology is 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 very likely at work gun populism is very different though gun populism is what we hear when um, we um, hear police for example celebrating first responders uh, private civilians as first responders police who see um, gun carriers as potentially um you know as as, as proactive and and pro social elements of, of social order and so in contrast to sort of the the tropes and typecasts that i heard with regard to gun military with gun populism. It's the, you know, it's kind of the salt of the earth types that are sort of aligned with middle class um, respect, you know, middle class respectability and that sort of thing. So the teacher, the, the rancher with a the gun, the normal people, the people who live at 22 Cottage Lane and that sort of thing. And so, you know, they, if, you, if you view sort of the gun debate from these ideologies or these kinds of ways of talking about guns, I, I call them different um, dueling dueling gun talks in the book um you actually see that the gun debate is first of all it doesn't line up quite in the same way and you see sort of the same sort of racial um ways of thinking through who's a good guy and who's a bad guy with a gun on on you know in 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 various somewhat surprising corners of the gun debate
1: and and, and in your book you talk about the all of the links between gun politics and uh and police politics um and it's something i guess i'd never really uh, effectively connected so directly as, as you did but can you can you kind of walk briefly through through the history of this with the the NRA's role in courting the police and you know getting each other on on the same side
0: yeah so i think it's helpful for for the audience to just to to vet some statistics just on public opinion or opinion among the police which is that police even though we can imagine you know Uh, a kind of argument for why police might prefer uh, fewer guns in circulation. Based on the public opinion data or the police opinion data that's available, police not only support gun rights over gun control, but they do so uh, in far greater um, numbers than the general public. And so this is actually, um, you know, sort of a a century long, you know, a a development century long in the making uh, with regard to how police have become uh, sort of aligned with gun politics. And one of the really fascinating, maybe the most surprising things that I learned as as part of my research for the book was... Was how much the National Rifle Association has worked to cultivate ties with with police and police unions and police organizations. So as early as 1916, uh, the National Rifle Association actually called for police to qualify with their firearms to get regular standardized training. And so we talk about this, you know, this idea of police qualification on on firearms all the time. And that's an idea that actually, you know, over 100 years ago, the NRA really pushed. Uh, The NRA, um, you know, advocated for police to, to be armed in a standard way. So a lot of people may not realize that not only are the police a very, uh, a relatively uh, young institution in that they didn't exist really in the United States before the 1850s, uh, but this idea that police would have standard standard issued weaponry, that is also rather new and didn't really come, um, you know, come into fruition until the early, early part of the 20th century. And so throughout the 20th century, you actually see the NRA sort of working with um, cultivating ties with police, um, creating uh, competitions, training opportunities. Uh, right now, if you look at what the NRA does to, to cultivate ties with the police, there are um, scholarships, awards. There's grants actually that the, the NRA gives to individual police departments for weapons and training support. Uh, there are, there's print media that's directed at, at law enforcement. And so there's a great deal that the NRA has done to actually cultivate the police as allies in the gun debate.
1: Um, And you've talked about uh, how there is kind of this divide among police chiefs. I know you said that uh, a lot of police officers uh, more so support this gun populism theory or or arming everybody. Um, But I I guess, uh, can you, can you explain like why the latter has become so much more dominant? I mean, I I guess I would, I would think that more police would uh, in effect want more guns off the street. Is there just this, implicit trust in police and and the people because that that seems surprising to me
0: yeah yeah so i think what i what i really try to do in the book is sort of Emphasize that what police think about guns and how they understand guns and gun policy, it's rooted in it's, it's, it's rooted in a lot of different things. It's rooted in their firsthand experiences of gun violence, um, what kind of gun violence that they experience in their communities, um, the kinds of news and bulletins that they they receive as as part of being police chiefs, uh, but it's also um it, it's also based on sort of these these. Um, broader ideologies of of crime in the United States. And so when we think about gun violence and sort of what are the big um, sort of you know, when when you say those words, what are the images that pop into your mind? Um, you know, there's kind of, I, I realized as I was, as I was interviewing police, there's a, there's a pretty big divide in terms of where their minds go in terms of um, when you say the words gun violence. So is it sort of urban crime, um, gang violence, drug related violence? Um, and, and that sort of, uh, um, you know, that sort of set of things? Or is it mass shootings? Is it mass shootings happening in um, suburban and rural areas in schools and and that sort of thing? And so it isn't the case that um, police uh, either, you know, were kind of adherents to gun militarism versus gun populism, but that their ways of thinking about what's an appropriate way of dealing with gun violence differed based on sort of the kind of gun violence that they were imagining as as problematic and front and center to them. And so as, even as I was interviewing them, they kind of slipped between these two different ways of thinking about gun violence. And um, and so in terms of the, um, so, so yeah, so I just want to make it clear that, um, you know, I don't think police want everybody to be armed. They certainly are are in favor of um, some sort of background check or vetting system, uh, I think that was that was definitely something that, that came up over and over. But still, this idea, I think what's really profound is this idea that um, you know, at least some segment of the population uh, is not, uh, to have them armed is not problematic to the police. So where does that come from? Why does that happen? Um, and how is, is that something new? So obviously, I didn't do longitudinal interviews. I wish I could. Uh, but from my conversations with police, what it seems like has been a key turning point has been um, the, the emergence of sort of the era of mass shootings. So I interviewed one chief. Who was actually in Colorado? He wasn't a responding officer, but he was in Colorado when, um, when the Columbine uh, massacre happened in 1999. And for him, it was it was um, you know it was devastating to hear him talk about how uh, you know he felt like that, that that law enforcement as a community felt that they failed those kids because of the way that they followed protocols with regard to um, basically contain and wait strategies. So contain the area, wait for SWAT to arrive. After Columbine, um, there was a massive shift in police strategies for responding to mass shootings. And instead, it was a much more first responder type um, approach. So what happens is that police, um, you know, what seems to have happened is that police have really embraced this sort of emphasis on first responders and broadened the category of who can be a first responder. So, you know, I had one chief who told me it doesn't matter if it's a police officer, if it's an armed private civilian. If I need help, I want someone armed who can help me. And so I think this idea of sort of gun violence in the form of mass shootings that can happen, one of the chiefs said, you know, in the strangest of places, of course, these aren't necessarily strange places, but for sort of the class and and the class and racialized uh, nature of the, you know, the white picket fence and the, the suburb and that sort of thing um that 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 these these shootings can happen in the strangest of strangest of places and so to to not have a firearm um and so this is also why police told me that they carried off duty um they were very uh very few said they carried off duty because they were concerned about uh perf- uh you know harms coming their way as a result of something they did as as a police officer as as a result of their profession they they said that their off duty carry guns were about making sure that if you know there was a mass shooting that they would be able to respond because they would be devastated, ashamed, embarrassed. You know all of this very evocative language um, if they were in that situation and and could not be armed. And I just want to point out that that is so different from how they talk about sort of responding to violence in the context of urban gun violence, which you know it very much elicits this sort of warrior uh, mentality that we we have, we discuss a lot in sort of public discourse about police militarism. This sort of brand of policing was 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 very different. And and elicited a very different set of emotions. And so I think that it's really mass shootings that has shifted, uh, at least in terms of how uh, police sort of explain their, not just their thoughts on on concealed carriers and and gun carriers, but even their relationship with their own guns. Um, They they cite uh, some of them very explicitly that the turning point was um, one or another mass shooting that has happened in the last 10 or 20 years.
1: Um, so I know that you interviewed police chiefs in California and Arizona and Michigan, uh, since we're in California, I I, I'd like to, uh, talk more in depth about them. Um, you described that many of the police chiefs here described this kind of anti elitism mentality. Um, can you describe what this means and how this sentiment differed from the chiefs in Arizona and in Michigan?
0: Yeah, so the California context is really interesting. It is interesting because unlike in Michigan and Arizona, it's depending on where you are, relatively difficult to get a license to conceal carry, um, and you, you generally cannot open carry in California. So the stakes of sort of what gun rights meant um, in a practical sense were different in California than in Arizona or Michigan, where gun carry was really front and center. So that's that's kind of an important thing to to keep in mind in terms of thinking about. Uh, Chiefs' attitudes on guns in California. So what I found in California was, um, uh, and this is not actually, I think, unique to uh, guns I think in some ways the gun issue is a way to express sort of um sentiment uh suspicions legal cynicism um and and apprehensions about the legislative process and the lawmaking process in California so you know everything from you know lawsuit capital of the world is California to you know complaints about the the sort of um complicated nature of the criminal code in California. Uh, one of the things that came up that was really fascinating to me was not just how police sort of saw this, this intricate sort of web of gun laws as, as, um, you know, making it very easy to, to commit a gun crime or a, really any, uh, you know, a variety of misdemeanors or, or crimes. Um, one of actually the chiefs in Arizona who used to work in California, you know, he was like, yeah, the, the joke in California is drive two miles and you've just, commi- you've just committed a crime. Um, and that's, you know, just to kind of, you know, get at this idea that that the, the criminal code is so complicated and it's so sort of such a web. And so, you know, police chiefs were definitely concerned about that in terms of enforcement. Um, it created an enforcement dilemma for them because um, it's, it's, It's very difficult to keep up with um, complicated law, not just in terms of how it's changing, but also how it's actually being, how it should be implemented so that when it's kicked up to the courts, if it does get kicked up to the courts, um, the courts are aligned with what the police, you know, the police are doing what the the court, they expect the courts to, you know, to see as as legal, constitutional and what have you. So that creates sort of an enforcement dilemma for police. There's also this other element that I found absolutely fascinating, which is that it wasn't just that police were concerned about enforcing the law, but that they were concerned with how these laws would come back on them. So there were complaints about sort of um, you know, legislators who would write laws and either not consult the police or not think through how poli- how how these laws might affect police, affect police's capacity to access ammo, magazines, firearms or affect how police, um, you know, affect, uh, well yeah, affect how police actually engage um, in their jobs. Also, there was a personal kind of personal stake in this too. So uh, people may not realize that a lot of the gun laws in California are, um, there, there are exceptions for police. And this makes sense, of course, if if, if there's you know, some kind of professional obligation that requires that to be such. Uh, with regard to the assault weapons ban in California, police are, uh, active duty police can purchase and own um, assault weapons, provided that they're, um, you know, they're, they're duty guns to some extent. What happens, though, is that police departments may not um, have the funds, for example, to purchase these guns, so police will use their personal funds to purchase these guns, and once they retire, they are required to... Relinquish those firearms somehow, um, either by um, you know just turning them in or getting reimbursed. A lot of agencies may not be able to necessarily reimburse, and so it actually creates this sort of um, incentive, or I shouldn't say incentive. It creates this sort of catch twenty two where police actually end up coming out of this much more cynical about gun laws and sort of um, you know how gun laws affect them than they they may otherwise um, may otherwise do. So so there's the irony that the very set of laws that are kind of, um, you know, put, for example, California on the map as a, you know, gun restrictive place are actually um, in some ways cultivating pro-gun sentiment among police um, by virtue of the way that the law is written.
1: Uh, So uh, shifting gears a little bit, you got a really rare peek inside uh, gun boards in Michigan, I believe it was. Um, where largely current or former law enforcement officers would decide whether to issue or deny or revoke gun licenses. Uh, Can you talk about what you learned by watching these?
0: Yeah, this was uh, just an eye-popping part of my research. So these gun boards are basically places where people who apply for or have a license to carry concealed uh, are called to the gun board if either something is flagged on their applications for that gun license or somehow they're flagged for having done something um, to to, um, raise the the concerns of the gun board. And so this can be everything from uh, a sodomy arrest from the 1950s an unpaid Mm -hmm. Parking ticket from five years ago. It can be a, a, a current arrest. It can be simply a police referral uh, that the police maybe didn't make an arrest, but were nevertheless referred someone to Gun Board for review. So really, um, sort of a broad net of things that can bring someone to a Gun Board. And the surprise. So so already we know, um, you know, in, in terms of the criminal justice system and who's most likely to have contact with the criminal justice system, we know that there's a there's a racial disparity there. Um, in terms of, you know, who populates, uh, criminal justice, um, records, actually whites are more likely to have contact with police because they're more likely to call the police to, um, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to initiate that conversation, um, but, or that contact, but when it comes to criminal records, um, and having a criminal record, having a felony record, uh, people of color are vastly overrepresented. And so, um, what, and, and, And this is not just people who, by the way, are are convicted of a crime, but people who simply have uh, police contact, right? Um, And so I want to make it really clear that this is not an indication of criminality. This is an indication of of interaction with the criminal justice system, which is, you know, um, a a totally different topic that we could spend a lot of time um, talking about. And so what I saw on these gun boards was really um, a a perversion of what I think a lot of people think gun licensing is. So, you know, we have this sort of line that it's, it's... You know, concealed carry outside of places like California and New York, places like Arizona. If you apply for a license here or Michigan, places with what's called shall-issue legislation, that it's non-discretionary, and basically, if you fulfill the criteria, you get the license, and it's a straightforward process. And you know, it's it's seen as a as a good thing for gun rights, right? It's an expansion of gun rights. And what I found was that there is a lot of uh, um, discretion in terms of how what seemed to be clear-cut bureaucratic sort of statutory requirements uh, are actually um, used in ways to um, not necessarily deny people a gun license, but to create the concealed carry licensing process as a way to discipline people about uh, proper proper public or private uh, behavior. And so what I found in these licensing boards was that African-American and white um, claimants who are called to these boards were treated very, very differently. They came for different reasons. Um, African-Americans were much more likely to have um, old criminal records be the reason, you know, older than a certain number of years, be the reason that they're called to the board. But even among comparable cases, for example, someone called for domestic violence, someone called for um, not disclosing a concealed pistol licensing status to a police officer, which you're required to do if you're stopped in Michigan, um, African-American claimants would be lectured on how to... with the police. They would be told, basically, you need to, in so many words, you need to understand that you're going to look like a threat with a gun to a police officer, and you need to put that officer at ease. White claimants were not given that same uh, lesson, we could call it. Same with uh, domestic violence. I saw African-American claimants, um, you know, and I say, take the stand they they stood at a podium, even though it was not actually a trial, it was an administrative process. Uh, they had their partners called for questioning at the podium as well. Whites did not experience this level of scrutiny, and so it was this really um, kind of powerful uh, forum to see. You know, we, we, we can think about sort of how race and, and racial, you know, racial discrimination, racism, harassment, all of these things uh, operate at very, very different levels. And so what I saw was that the gun itself, the gun license itself was actually being used as a tool uh, in the in the book. I talk about it in terms of, of racial disciplining um, and, and a way to sort of discipline, uh, particularly men of color in terms of, you know, the appropriate uh, behaviors that are the conditions of their their gun license.
1: And so you and I were talking earlier about uh, some of the more recent issues that could affect uh, gun ownership, gun violence in the U.S. Um, You you said that you had spoken to a lot of uh, gun sellers during the pandemic, Um, and they've uh, experienced a huge surge. Um, Can you kind of talk about what the pandemic has been like for them um, and kind of the reasons behind the spikes in gun sales?
0: Yeah, yeah. This has been really fascinating to to talk to gun sellers. So I talked to over fifty gun sellers in Michigan, California, Arizona, and Florida to try and get a handle of what they're experiencing with this massive surge. And it's unprecedented in terms of the number of guns that are being sold. Uh, and of course, we're, we're we use the NICS background check system as a as a proxy for the number of guns sold. But the number of background checks that have have um, happening have been happening on a monthly basis have just kind of blown. Previous records out of the water, and so you know it's a, it's a big question to sort of unravel. It seems like there's at least three different distinct uh, surges in terms of gun purchasing. One sort of um, in response to coronavirus and the sense of sort of social insecurity that that sort of elicits. Seeing toilet paper out at the you know at the supermarket, not knowing what this pandemic is or what's what is sort of the consequences of of you know what government you know how governments will respond. What are the, you know, what are, what is, uh, you know, are we going to have lockdowns? How prolonged are they going to be? How protracted is this all going to to, to be as, as, as you know, we try and figure out what's going on? Then in um, June with the murder of George Floyd, uh, there seemed to be another wave of people who um, were purchasing because of various, uh, you know, very specific fears about civil unrest amid the protests and, and all of that. Uh, and now it seems like there's, um, you know, kind of underlying all of this but becoming a, a bit louder is concerns about the election uh both in terms of uh and and we saw this last night in terms of the debate um you know the the sort of growing sense that there's going to be violence um related to the election either running up to it or in the aftermath of it as well as sort of the the usual election concerns that um you know that there, that someone who is you know that that you know someone who is not favorable to gun rights could be elected and and pass laws and so you should you know get it while you can um but yeah it's been really interesting because unlike the the gun carriers that i interviewed in 2010 there seems to be um a much much stronger consensus about the the possibility of of violence and that's not to say that gun sellers are are endorsing this or celebrating this Um, many of them are are kind of Mm -hmm. scratching their heads and saying this is not the time to you know move from you know the the ballot box to the 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 box of ammo Um, but but this kind of sense that a lot of people are believing that it's inevitable even if it isn't necessarily inevitable is definitely um something that has been striking in terms of these interviews
1: So uh, just kind of in general, what types of policies do you believe that police departments should adopt to curb a racial viewpoint of uh, gun violence?
0: Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, And I think (laughs) that there is a lot of, um, yeah, wow, that's a very that's a very hard question to answer and the reason that it's so hard is that a lot of the you know one of the one of the the go to kind of ways of especially under president obama of sort of um dealing with uh Racial disparities in police violence, the the killing of, of people of color, particularly African Americans and and native uh, native peoples, um, has been to sort of introduce these implicit bias trainings. So this idea that you get people to sort of reflect and think about their implicit biases, recognize implicit bias, and um, they will they will react differently with regard to um, you know encounters that they may have you know in the, in the course of policing. The problem, though, is that there there is um not a lot of evidence that that actually works um there's even evidence that implicit bias training can deepen stereotypes um, and so this is yeah so so i think that you know so there's that then there's you know sort of the calls for creating a new um you know paradigm of policing or not necessarily creating but but sort of um supporting the the prevalence of a new kind of policing, such as uh, guardian policing. So replace the warrior with the guardian. And, you know, we... My apprehension with that is that we've kind of already done this. We did this in the 1990s in the aftermath of the, the brutal beating of Rodney King. Um, part of the Clinton crime bill that um, included the, the assault weapons ban at the federal level also included a whole lot of money to public law enforcement in the hopes that they would expand community policing uh, community policing as, as, as part of what they do. And so community policing has long been sort of this celebrated way of, of kind of squaring the circle with regard to police-community relations uh racism in policing, racial disparities in policing outcomes, and all of this. And that, a lot of that money actually ended up moving toward um, supporting police militarization. So, you know, whether training, military equipment, or what have you. And so I think that, um, I, I, I think that to say that you know adopting policies it 's really hard to think through just because we have so many examples of policy failure. Um, I think that recruitment is a huge piece of the puzzle. I think that um thinking about what we as the public ask police to do is a huge piece of the puzzle, and I think thinking through sort of um you know this is not just. The, the, the stuff that we're seeing with public law enforcement um, that has been, you know, kind of capturing headlines in the news and, you know, over the last several years. This is not new. This is not, um, you know, we can, I I mean, it's not new, not just in the sense of like, yeah, this, like literally the Kerner Commission, the Kerner Report um, was commenting on such similar dynamics in the 1960s. Um, And and even that is not new. We can look back to what happened under prohibition. We can look back to, um, you know, all the way to really early forms of, of policing before public law enforcement, when you essentially had whites deputized to stop any person who appeared to be of African descent and detain them, um, abuse them, physically harass them, uh, physically assault them violently. And that was sort of baked into sort of the the sort of joint production of a racial caste system in the U.S. and, and you know, putative social public order. And so I, I think that, and, and so obviously that gets all sort of accelerated once we get to the 1960s, we have the war on crime, we have a whole host of strategies, protocols, government Initiatives, but also private actions. Um, Whether we're thinking about uh, you know media, uh, obviously uh, you know um, journalists and and news reporting, but also you know the popularization of cop shows, the popularization of sort of cop dramas. Um, And so I think you know. I, there's this, there's this uh, policing scholar named Egon Bittner who makes this this um, point. He's writing in the 1970s and I think it says something that this point is still so relevant. You know, he says there's, some, there's something perverse about how the public relates to the police. Uh, the police wants, or the public wants the police to basically deal with problems that they don't want to deal with. And I think a lot of that is, um, you know, a, the white public who is asking police to, to quote unquote solve problems that they're not going to solve directly themselves. And they blame the police when they either respond with too much force or too little force, but they refuse to actually um, sort of see their own um, investment in, in police and, and what police do. And I think that um, it's not a policy that just police departments can can implement. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a shift in how we think through what policing is in this society and how much it matters to our, our sense, um, our basic sense of sort of what it means to feel safe. And so that's where this kind of connection, I mean, the big part of the book is is Connecting gun politics with the politics of, of the police, and making this argument that you cannot talk about these things separately because they both come from the same impulse of sort of this sense of how to um, how to create um, how to create uh, both social order but also a feeling of social order. And in American society, uh, generally, um, people in the U.S. turn to the police and they turn to privately owned uh, firearms to, to pursue those ends.
1: Uh, So based on your research, what do you think is the future of firearm ownership? Which, which direction is it going? Are we, are, are we becoming a more armed society? Or do you think that the pendulum is swinging the other direction?
0: Yeah, I, I most certainly think that uh, you know certainly the numbers of new gun owners as a result of this huge the the, the surge in purchasing over the past six months uh, definitely suggests that we are not um, we are not uh, having fewer guns in circulation. Uh, there's somewhere we don't again know the number of guns in circulation because we don't have a national registry, but somewhere between 300 and 400 million guns are in circulation in the U.S. And guns are durable objects; they don't um, they don't degrade; they they last a long long time um and so uh i would say that in terms of you know gun like are we becoming less armed um i think what we're seeing is uh and this is kind of the story with with politics in general that we are becoming more divided in terms of our gun politics. And so, you know, one way to re- illustrate that is, um, you know, the people who own guns, people are owning more guns, even the people who own guns. So there's, these, you know, the, the phenomenon of super owners. Um, there also is this um, sort of people have talked about it as the politicization of everything. I find it fascinating that where you go to get groceries or where you go to get a cup of coffee is now infused with gun politics. So there are pro-gun coffee shops. There are um, coffee shops. You know, Starbucks was um, made a a couple years back uh, basically made a statement that they're they're not going to allow guns in their stores. That was sort of a a moment of sort of before they were kind of um, embraced by by the gun rights community and at that point they were obviously not embraced. Um, And so it's, it's not just sort of um you know whether we own guns or not it's how gun politics are actually being refracted into all these different spaces not just political other political issues which we see that um you know in terms of of these different issues being connected that maybe weren't as tightly connected before but also in terms of just like what we do as as you know just as, as people beyond sort of the politics, now we can't escape the politics, and so this is why you know um, you know I, I obviously write, I research, I also teach, and um, you know I, I this is why to plug the university, I find it so crucial to be able to talk to students um, at the University of Arizona undergrads who actually have a wide array of views on guns, which I love. I love having a class that has um, many different viewpoints and actually getting them to talk to each other and have a conversation where they can actually talk to each other and recognize um and hold space for one another's views and i think that's where um that's where i see sort of um yeah the 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 this deepening in terms of of gun politics not that that we're we're going to become more and more divided yeah and so how many years did you say that, that you researched for this book uh i started interviewing in 2014 okay i inter- okay. i did my yeah i did my interviews in in 2014 to 2017 Okay. So did you, I I know this,
1: you're dealing with so many serious topics, but was there any, I guess, favorite part of the research, anything that just surprised you so much?
0: I mean, I was I was grateful for police being able or being willing to talk to me and for being really candid about um, you know especially in California uh, you know I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of political pressure all over the place particularly in California and I I really appreciated the willingness of police to talk to me um, the willingness of police to to be really frank about their um, their thoughts and experiences with guns gun politics gun gun violence um, I could not have done this book without them. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's. This is why I love qualitative work, and I'm sure as a reporter you also experience this as well. Um, I, I feel really lucky that I get to to talk to people, uh, talk to people across the political spectrum, um, and get to sort of see see things through their eyes uh, to try and make sense of of yeah this this crazy world we're in. It's it's a privilege to do that.
1: Yeah. Well and and it seems like the um with with your work you were able to get a lot of really unvarnished points of view that somebody like me can't get because I get the political statements all the time but it, from the interviews I've seen it looks like the the police chiefs were very candid with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there were a few things going on. Uh, I actually started this research when I was at the university of Toronto. Uh, I'm I have us citizenship. I'm not Canadian, but I I started my, um, I I started my academic career at the university of Toronto and um, you know, there's different politics with, with kind of getting research approved um, at different universities. And so for whatever reason, the university of Toronto was very adamant that I, I go out of my way to sort of protect the anonymity of police and ensure that there's nothing that could trace them back to, to, to having participated in this research, so mm-hmm. you know, not recording, but also not taking signatures. So there's literally, um, you know, there there's there's it, it's it's a very you know it was a process that really protected uh, the confidentiality and, and anonymity of the of the interviewees. And so I think that that was um, a hu- I think that actually University of Toronto did me a huge favor because um, I, I know that a lot of police chiefs would um, would have kind of question whether they wanted to be a part of a research project if they, if they were going to be recorded or that sort of thing. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that, that was, um, that was really powerful, but I also think that the, you know, I think that sometimes the issue with getting, um, you know, getting people to be honest and getting people to sort of be frank and, and, and really get into the sort of the way they think about these issues, a lot of it just has to do with, with, sort of not just asking the right questions, but asking the questions that, that, that they've been kind of, you know, mulling over, but that no one's asked them. And so I think that for some of them, mm-hmm. at least, it was an opportunity to, to talk about something that they they actually don't have a chance to, to talk about in a sort of extended way beyond the sound bites that they're, they're expected to, to provide to, to the news and, and to the public and that sort of thing. So I was, yeah, I was, I was super grateful that they were willing to take me up on that.
1: Do you have, um, I, I know you're just finishing this up, but do you have any, uh, the next project in mind we're going to focus on? Yeah, like, focus on? yeah, yeah.
0: So I'm actually starting to think through what uh, a book about 2020 will look like with these new interviews with gun sellers. Um, of course, that's really difficult because the 20 the story of 2020 has not been written yet. And so, uh, yeah, it's 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 been helpful to sort of think through political dynamics that I think many of us, if not all of us are kind of, um, just at a loss for, um, but I think that Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's been, it's been also helpful to have that space to do that or to, to focus on that. But yeah, that's the next project is is thinking about gun sales, sort of gun sales, gun politics, gun markets at the edge of democracy. Um, what looks like we are about uh, 20 minutes
1: left right now. So I'm going to switch over to some of the audience questions. Um, let's see, Amy Goa, we have quite a few. Um, let's see. All right. Uh, one, the first question is: um, Would stripping police of their handguns help? And if so, how?
0: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Um, it's super fascinating because there's there's actually a criminologist at UC Berkeley named Frank Zimmerman who's written about uh, police uh, police perpetrated killings. And, you know, his argument is actually gun control is the answer, that it's there's there's a simple answer. There's a simple answer for why, um, you know, other countries don't face this um, this, this same elevated rate of, of police perpetrated homicides. And so reducing the number of guns in circulation will, um, you know, deescalate the sort of terms of even stopping someone in the first place with regard to police encounters. Um, the flip side of that, though, of course, is exactly what this question um, sort of elicits, is this question of, well, why not disarm the police? And um, mm-hmm. it's funny because one of the examples that is uh, sometimes touted with that is uh, the English example, the UK, um, although they're, they do have armed police. Um, and in some ways, uh, I think that they have really, um, that, that that's... Uh, something that they benefit from in terms of that image in terms of police legitimacy, but there's, they're, they, they still, you know, they're, they're not a disarmed force. Right. Um, So as far as what would, um, what would that do? Well, I think the first thing, so this is like one of the things you figure out when you're, when you're interviewing people Uh, the first few interviews, you ask questions and you realize that your questions are, maybe not the best questions to build rapport. And so one of my questions was, you know, what would you feel as a police officer if you couldn't have a gun on duty? And I mean, it was just utter disdain. I wouldn't even have this job. How could you even ask that question? I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it 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 exposed me as you know, how what kind of imagination do you have that you could imagine a a world where police would not have guns. Right. So I, I think that, um, Yeah, I I actually think that to to question the relationship between the police, a police officer and their, their, their duty handgun is to question police altogether. And so I think that's, I guess that's how I'd answer that question is that that question is actually um, not asking about, you know, removing handguns from police, but actually fundamentally rethinking what the police, who the police are, what they do, and, and why we, we, we turn to them you know 911 mm-hmm. callers as a society and what have you and um and and I guess what I would say is that if we did you know so this this gets back to you know obviously all the debates about you know police defunding trans police transformation reform and what have you and you know, one of the things that I think we need to really grapple with is what exactly, and this is going to be different for people positioned differently at, you know, in different spaces in different communities, but what exactly we want from the police as a state institution? What is it that we want from police? Um, and what is it that police can provide that no other private or public institution can do? And until we come up with that answer, I don't think we have a good sense of, of how we can transform police because all we're doing at that point is sort of, you know, kind of putting a band aid on something that maybe we've collectively decided we, we, we don't like a particular outcome, but we haven't yet figured out what it is we actually want. And for such a massive institution um, to, you know, in, in so many ways to have so much power and so much um, impact on our lives, uh, particularly people who are, um, you know, in, in over-policed areas. Um, that's a question that is, is actually, um it's, it's somewhat crazy that we don't have a clear answer for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the next question is, how did military-style uh, assault weapons end up in the hands of police? Uh, and is it due to the close relationship between police and the military?
0: Yeah, so um, there's a lot of stories, uh, a lot of sort of um uh, vicissitudes in terms of how police get armed right uh, and so one uh, example that immediately comes to mind uh, in terms of this question about is it the is it uh, police and the military is actually an example from the 1960s in the aftermath uh, or sorry as as um, in the midst of the Detroit riot and so uh, one thing that um, you know we 're so used to sort of talking about police militarization, we know about you know the ten 1033 program that basically offloads surplus military equipment to police departments. And, um, you know, and that started in the 1990s. But prior to that, actually, if you go back to the 1960s, uh, police were not actually able to get military surplus. In fact, um, because of, um, basically uh, egregious instances, um, that Southern involving Southern police departments using, um, police, uh, sorry, military surplus equipment, um, in, um, in, in their jurisdictions, uh, basically, the military stopped selling directly to police. So their surplus carbines, they were not selling to police. Now, the trick, though, is that the NRA still had a, an agreement with the military to sell discounted military surplus to its members. And so in Detroit in the 1960s, in the sort of immediate aftermath of the, um, the Detroit riot, uh, the department could not afford to purchase carbines for for its officers, but they could encourage their officers to join the NRA in mass in order to buy discounted carbines. So there's a lot of really interesting ways in which um, the sales of guns and gun markets intersect with policing and gun politics. Um, as far as the um, the introduction of the patrol rifle, uh, usually the sort of conversation about that or the explanation about that, um, it, the the sort of shift from um, or the shift toward having patrol rifles as sort of standard issue uh, has to do with a hollywood shootout in in la and so that's sort of often treated as the the sort of breaking point where police started in um, mass actually seeing patrol rifles as part of their their arsenal of, of firearms um, but yeah the the sort of history is really fascinating and complicated in terms of up to that point uh, how not just how armed police are or who is armed but how they go about getting armed
1: uh, the next question is: uh, With the exception of Senator Chris Murphy and Rep. Lucy McBath, few national politicians seem to embrace gun reform and reducing gun
0: violence as a pivotal issue. Why is that? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I think the the typical answer, or the 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 sort of answer that is often given to that question, is that um, you know it's it's a it's a losing battle with regard to the deep pockets of the NRA and the capacity of the NRA to galvanize its base. So, you know, when Clinton passed um, the series of gun reforms and, and and gun control at the federal level in the early 90s, he lost control of Congress and sort of named the NRA as, as quote unquote, the most powerful lobby in Washington. Um, and so, you know, Al Gore's loss in his home state of Tennessee is attributed to the NRA, um, you know, being so powerfully able to, to galvanize. Its, its base. So I think that there is um, there's some of that. I think that there is some um, fatigue in terms of a debate that seems to be um, uh, at a standstill. And I think that that's, um, again, why I think it's really important to think through um, how we can maybe think think about this debate a little bit differently and have different ways of engaging with what's, you know, what's at stake. Um and then I think I mean I, I I'm trying to think. There's it seems like the other piece is that um, you know just it's, gun politics are very odd when we when we think about them as sort of you know local politics versus state politics versus. Uh, at the federal level at the state level there is um, you know a whole lot of action that happens with regard to, to gun laws um, if you look just at the year after Sandy Hook happened I mean just so much action in terms of gun laws not just being proposed but also passed um, gun laws in which um, there's actually surprisingly consensus uh, on for example mental health related laws uh, which I think every time there is consensus we should actually question that and think about what is the what is the the price of that consensus um, because at least in my my research for this book a lot of that has been um you know the criminalization of blackness and and sort of the the use of guns as a vehicle of criminalization um but yeah i think that at the federal level i think that too often uh guns sort of gets passed over um in favor of other other issues and I've, I've seen this happen you know even in terms of conversations um you know about guns or debates about guns i think that uh particularly in the last four years there's been a tendency to um you know, like, For example, the 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 um, and I don't actually write about this in my book, but I I could have a footnote in it, which is that when the killer of Philando Castile is acquitted, um, you know, that was when there was some yet again, something else coming out about, you know, the the relationship between Russia and, you know, the Trump campaign. And that conversation got so little time in terms of the national in terms of national debate. Um, And we it almost seemed like police shootings of people people of color stopped when Trump was elected, if all you were doing was watching the news, because suddenly we didn't, we didn't, and we, I guess the the public discourse didn't have the bandwidth to also talk about that. Now, obviously that's Uh erupted back into the, the, the sort of public discussion, but I think, um, yeah, I I think that there is, there is a, a way in which gun politics, um, and, and also the politics of the police get sidelined at the federal level. Um, and, and, and yeah, so, so, but I would say if you want to look for the action the action is happening at the state level okay
1: uh, next question is what did you discover um i guess if you if you research this about the police enforcement of red flag laws
0: yeah, so that's a really great question because obviously California was one of the states uh, in the aftermath of the, the mass shooting at UC Santa Barbara uh, was one of the states that sort of um, got the conversation rolling in terms of red flag laws. Um, so I, I to be perfectly Frank, um, police did not, that that was not the focus sort of, of, of police concerns about gun policy and gun violence. That being said, though, I think that police had, um, sort of a, a, expectedly cynical attitude about, um, even, you know, we could also include personal protection orders, which also, um, oftentimes, um, include a gun ban on them. Um, so different kinds of emergency orders. And so on the one hand, I think police were, um, you know, they saw it as, as a tool, but they didn't see. It as sort of the the be all end all that would that would you know prevent a situation from from happening uh they did raise com- uh, concerns about constitutionality constitutionality of of you know how and not just in terms of um you know their own kind of Sensibility about what's constitutional versus not, but also, especially in California, the possibility of being, um, you know, open to being sued. And that was something that, you know, again, to go mm-hmm. back to the anti-elitism, this attitude of, you know, these lawmakers pass these laws, but that implicitly give us, you know, put an obligation on us, us to do a set of things, but either we don't do those things and then we are, we are called, taken to task or we do do those things and we're taken to task because the exact things that the law said we could do were actually unconstitutional. And so they were concerned about sort of being in this this, um, you know, this constitutional bind in terms of in terms of enforcing laws. So I I think that there is there was not a strong sense of, you know, these these things are, are, you know, pointless or unconstitutional or what have you. Uh, But there wasn't a a sort of universal embrace either. There was a lot of um, apprehension. And, you know, that also, the the apprehension also can be seen with regard to domestic violence and um, the enforcement of gun laws related to domestic violence.
1: Um, Next question, very, very hot topic. Um, What would be, I guess, in your opinion, or what are some of the uh, debates around this, um, the correct way for police to deal with armed protesters and armed counter protesters?
0: Yes, <laughs> that's, a <huge laughs> um, that's a huge question. That's a huge question. I mean, I think that the fact that there is very little, um, yeah, so, okay, how do I answer this? What is interesting is not so much that, well, there's a lot of interesting things and a lot of sort of, um Layers to, you know, for example, what we saw with Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he's basically given words of appreciation and then goes on to, um, you know, kill two people in, um, at at the protests going on um, in, in, in Wisconsin. Um, you know, it. I think that what I would call attention to is um, that this is not just how police deal with um, armed protesters, but how um, race creates a double standard in how police deal with armed mm-hmm. protesters. So in my research, I, you know, I... I could see this double standard at work, for example, in, um, you know, how police talked uh, very stridently about disarming, you know, the presumed gangbanger or drug dealer, um, seeing um, the the capacity of people who uh, commit crimes uh, very much associated with sort of Urban uh, tropes of 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 criminality um, that they've rescinded their right to self defense and that sort of thing. Um, but then when it came to sort of sovereign citizens or the open carriers who tend to be white, although not exclusively, um, police were much more likely to not treat it as um, a threat, a, a dire threat to public safety, but as an annoyance, as a nuisance. Um, you know, just um, you know, write them a ticket and walk away. Try and deescalate and, and that sort of thing. And and so I think that there is, you know, this goes back to the Bittner quote that um, in some ways we we are asking police to do an impossible task, which is to make fast decisions about, um, you know, messy situations that can escalate to violence. And I think it's it's absolutely OK to recognize that. But I think what is also crucial to recognize is that the way in which police make those decisions is is appears to be absolutely uh, strife with, um, you know, racial disparities and, and who is a threat and who is. Is, um, who is not a threat, who is seen as, as a, you know, as part of public, uh, as, as pro-social and, and productive of public order, as Kyle Rittenhouse presumably was seen by those officers that that gave him words of appreciation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, I, as I'm sure that you watched
1: last night, you, kind of, you were speaking about this earlier. There's just this nasty debate last night. Um, obviously, politics are so polarized right now um Trump mentioned that he was not going to condemn any white supremacy groups do you think that, that this type of highly charged uh political discourse on violence what what does that do to guns in america is this is that part of what's driving up this spike you mean in terms of people purchasing
0: guns yes yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people, so I think it's important to recognize that people who own guns are, there are many different motivations for owning guns. And even people who are motivated by self-defense, think of self-defense in different terms. They think of it in terms of home defense, personal defense, as opposed to, um, you know, defense of some, you know, white supremacist order, which is, you know, the, the Proud Boys, who are, um, Trump did not condemn, um, he told them instead mm-hmm. to stand back and stand by. So I think that um, people are turning to guns um, with a general sense that um, there is a possibility of political violence, of unrest. And I think that, you know, in some ways, it's easy to say, you know, this is just a bunch of you know, this is just this is just what pro-gun America looks like. But, but from what I've seen from or heard from gun sellers, uh, there are a lot of first-time gun buyers. There are a lot of people who never thought they would buy a gun before in their lives, right. and they are afraid and they don't know what's going to happen. And I I have this quote, um, and I should pull it up, uh, or I can paraphrase it from a gun seller that basically, you know, he says there's so much uncertainty. The uncertainty has been created by fake news. Nobody knows what's going on, and when you have that much uncertainty, you have to have a guarantee, and the only guarantee in this country is the right to keep and uh, keep and bear arms okay. and so i think that you know there's there's again this kind of um reckoning that i think we need to have with not just sort of saying oh this is you know this is this is what people you know the pro gun side does they buy guns as you know but but that this is actually what this this sort of last six months is revealing is that when push comes to shove the sort of social safety net in the united states comes down to whether or not someone can own a gun, whether or not they own a gun. And mm-hmm. I think that is, um, you know, that, that's, that's the form of so- social welfare that we have in this country. And I think really wrapping our heads around that um, does not just kind of help us understand why guns suddenly, you know, gun purchases suddenly surge, but also helps us understand the embeddedness of guns in um, everyday life as tools of security and safety for people in the U.S. If you look at the numbers, um, there was, um, there's been polls that ask people, uh, you know, do you feel is a gun with is a gun is a home with a gun safer than a home without a gun? Twenty years ago, mm-hmm. the majority of people in the U.S. said um, America is safer with fewer guns. A, a, a home without a gun is safer than a home with a gun. Those numbers have completely flipped, uh, and now a majority of people say um, a, a home with a gun is safer. More guns make mm-hmm. America more safe. Having con- license concealed carry makes America safer, and so that is. Um, that's a really uh, that, that's a really profound kind of statement on um, what people in this country um, the the tools at their disposal in order to um, uh, th- that they have at their disposal to to have a sense of safety and security.
1: Well, it looks like we are right about at time. Um, so thank you so much to Jennifer Carlson, author of the book Policing the Second Amendment: Guns, Law Enforcement, and the Politics of Race, uh, for joining us today. Uh, copies of Police and the Second Amendment, which is now out, are available everywhere books are sold. So make sure you grab one. Uh, we'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth's efforts in making uh, virtual programming, please visit Commonwealth.org slash online. I am Megan Cassidy, and thank you and stay safe, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.